God, we ask that you would touch our imaginations, that we might see clearly what you have done. You touch our imaginations so that we might see clearly what you are doing in our lives, in our community. We ask you to touch our imagination so that we can see all that you want to do. And God, change us. Touch our wills. Touch our hearts as well. Because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We were informed this week that in Camborne we are good neighbours. I don't know what you made of uh, hearing that. Um, the Young Foundations report was saying that we in Camborne, compared with other parts of the country, are good neighbours one with another. I certainly think we're interested in how we all get along and what's happening in Camborne. And I think we're all interested or even nosy to see what others get up to and what they do. Whether it be peeking over the hedge, watching soaps, or even the struggles that people have, whether it be through rugby, whatever forming as a human beings we are, how we manage situations, how we get on together is fascinating. It really is. And so in the last few weeks, we've been looking at the early Christians and how they got on together in the situations that God had set them. We, um, in times past, we have looked at Antioch. And remember, straight away, we encountered diversity. God had brought people from Africa to meet with those in Syria, today's Syria. Um, And we were struck by just how diverse. And I really hope that through doing this series we are catching a glimpse of just how diverse these Christian communities are. Part of the purpose of doing this is to say, in each place, in each time, there's a different group of people who held together in the faith in Jesus Christ and who worked out their faith in that particular way. It doesn't have to be like ways done in Corinth or in Jerusalem. Antioch was a particular place with particular people. The diversity is something striking. We noticed in Jerusalem the struggles they had to get on together. Um, and some of the, the, the Greek-speaking um, Jews were feeling left out, if you remember. And they had to address that and say, how can we better live together? In Corinth, we, that much maligned Christian community, we saw that the gospel had started either in the business part, possibly, with Priscilla and Aquila and their contacts, their business contacts with the craftsmen, with the traders in that portion of Corinth. Or else it suggested that Paul, being a tent maker, went and worked with the refugee community that had arrived after being thrown out of Rome. Both are interesting suggestions, but the gospel starts where people are. This was the point that Alan Hargrave made when he spoke about Thessalonica. Paul, we read, didn't get to spend as much time in Thessalonica as he'd like to. But in the first chapter of Thessalonians, we see their life together advocated and endorsed as an example, as a way of living to others. And we were deeply challenged by the words, to be an example to others, that others might imitate you. Oh, it's getting very personal, isn't it? Imitation of Jesus, of our lives together. And so we arrive today at Ephesus. And you'll see from the map, we are in southeast Turkey. And it's a great time of year to be in this part of the world, don't you think? And we encounter in verse 1 some disciples. Paul 
as we read that chapter, Paul first coming to Ephesus, he meets some disciples. Who are these people? Are they Christians? Clearly they're not Christians. They're not like Paul. But it seems like Paul called them disciples. People that were open to doing the right thing, to people of faith. People perhaps who'd been baptized by John the Baptist, but knew nothing of the Holy Spirit and hadn't been baptized in Jesus' name. So I think this passage means that we are not here promoting a second baptism or saying there's a second stage of Christian faith when the Holy Spirit comes. It was the particularity of these men's experience of following John the Baptist or whoever it was where they had not been baptized in Jesus' name and so had not been exposed to the Spirit of Jesus in the Holy Spirit. The first point about the work in Ephesus is that it begins with the Holy Spirit. It begins with the Holy Spirit. So easy for Paul to have dismissed these characters that he first met and waited to see somebody more like him Perhaps somebody that was already a a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. But no, he worked with those who were open and seeking God. People that were wanting good. People that were questioning. And I wonder if there's people around us like that. People that aren't card-carrying Christians, but people that ask good questions about themselves, of life around. See, there's going to be more to life than this, isn't there? I reckon these people are not far from the kingdom. And I'm sure each of us have people around us like that, our neighbours or in our workplaces. These are the people that Paul starts to work with in Ephesus. And so it begins with the work of the Holy Spirit. That is so important that spiritual roots are put down. Because let me tell you something now about the spirituality of Ephesus. To give you some background, Ephesus was all about Artemis when Paul came to Ephesus in around AD 50-51. For 1,000 years, the cult of the mother goddess had dominated the region like no pagan religion elsewhere in the world. And her temple was more than just a religious shrine. It was the source of immense civic pride, an assurance of protection, a secure bank, a treasure trove of priceless artworks, and most importantly, the centre of the city's thriving economy, the Temple of Artemis, at the time the Christian church arrives in Ephesus. Said to have been rebuilt seven times, the temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. Completed in about 250 BC, it was the largest structure in the Greek world at that time. And listen to Antipater of Sidon, who wrote, I set my eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids. But when I saw the house of Artemis, that mounted to the clouds, these other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. What Ephesian could help but look upon the temple and feel proud in being an Ephesian? Very interesting, very powerful pagan spirituality in this place when Paul arrives there. Therefore, I think it's highly significant that the significant work of planting the church there begins clearly and explicitly with the Holy Spirit coming on these people. 
This was a spiritual work. Not only is there a pagan cult happening, but also we have the Roman Empire. And Ephesus was the third city in the empire, an important place at that time. And the Roman Empire threatened to crush the life out of other people and other spirits. We know that after Domitian came to power in 81, he took a special interest in Ephesus and erected a temple and a gigantic statue of himself which sat on the temple portico. The Ephesians weren't too impressed with this and when he moved on, they chopped the statue in two so all that was left was his head. But again, hugely powerful spiritual forces that are around. This temple of Artemis, the worship or the, the, the call for allegiance from Domitian. It's in this setting that the Christian gospel is planted. I think it's easy for us to overlook the spirit of our age and its spirituality and how it affects us as people in our age of rampant individualism, in capitalism, which seems there's no alternative these days. What does that do to us spiritually? Where do we stand in the face of that? And don't be surprised as Christians if we rub up against that awkwardly. I think if we don't do that, I think maybe there's something wrong. But I want to come back to more of this general point and this triangle again. Because we're saying here the work began with God. God's Holy Spirit. It starts with the up. I was at a conference recently with colleagues of mine um, and chatting with Anne McLaurin and um, chatting about missional communities. And I was saying the, the out, the in, the up. She said, Peter, Peter, get your language right. Sorry, what do you mean? It always starts with the up. If it's of God, it starts with, it's up, in, and out. Or she might have said it's up, out, and in. I'm not quite, but it begins with up. Up. Every, it must begin with God. And for us as a church, we might have socials. We want to do things for our community, and rightly so. But as Christians, it's a relationship with God that we're here for. We recognize that we love God because God has loved us first. And therefore, we follow Jesus who tells us to love one another. It begins with God. Let's work hard at maintaining the up dimension in every aspect of our church, our lives, our groups. Where is the spiritual dimension to our lives, to our groupings, to our gatherings together? Are we open to God's Holy Spirit? I think sometimes the church can give the impression to be as much of a control organization as any other, perhaps even more so at times, certainly through history. Begin with the up, the coming of God's Holy Spirit, so that this work may put down significant spiritual foundations that would withstand the might of Rome and the temple of Artemis. That's why in Ephesians it begins, as I think as it does, with spiritual encounter with God's Holy Spirit. If Ephesus, in church history terms, is so important for the church, there's so many people, so many well-known Christian leaders are in Ephesus. As you notice, Paul spends nearly three years in Ephesus, and when he's there, he writes Corinthians and maybe other letters. Also there is Timothy, Silas, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila. It's sort of like Paul's got his Delta Force team there. 
And they spend time as that is their mission centre from which they build up people, they chat about things about faith in Jesus Christ, and from Ephesus, other places are reached. Now, being Camborne Church, um, we take research really seriously. When we do series like these, we don't muck around. We think it's important to go to these places. And so, last month, um, you might recognise these two British tourists. That that is Ephesus. We went to Ephesus. And uh, I'm not an archaeologist, whatever, but what a fabulous place. It's amazing. It's hard to kind of put into words the size of it, the grandeur of it. Um, if you say it's a bit like a film set, that makes film sound wonderful. But this is, you know, second century AD. You have streets, you have temples, you have houses to look at. This was where Paul had the debates. This is where we had Roman chariots going up and down the streets. You look and you see these marble streets, because they used marble in those days, and still with the ruts of where the chariots went up and down the high street. Incredible. If you get a chance, go to Ephesus. It's quite breathtaking in the... Just, just the whole being there. And it's one of a, a beautiful natural setting as well. Um, other places with great temples sometimes get crowded in by other things around them. But as you see, it's just wonderful. There's the, the library of Celsus, um, which was hugely important in its time. Um, there used to be the sea. It used to be a port. And interestingly, it's all silted up. The Turks that we spoke to were quite keen and that happened to all the rest of the Greek islands as well. So that you just walk across now and they become part of Turkey. But Ephesus used to be a port um, and it used to be just behind the library really. And it's amazing in time how, how things change. Beautiful place. This was the, the marketplace where there, there was trading that happened. Um, this was a shop, a shop front and they had a whole string of shops um, when Domitian came in, he put his head over all this shopping centre. It's very interesting to think of shopping and its power on us and trading and, and spirituality and symbolism above that. Um, the Ephesians weren't very impressed with this, but that's what he tried to impose his will and his allegiance on this place. At Ephesus, you've got this wonderful, all these streets that are so broad and so much to see, but also thanks to the work of a whole lot of Austrian archaeologists, they're piece by piece, and literally piece by piece, they're putting together some of the terraced houses that just back off the streets. And so you can see lots of detail as well as lots of grandeur. Big big vistas, but also detail of the houses that people lived in. It's amazing. I'm not selling you the package. I don't have tickets at the end of the talk. Don't worry. But um, uh, There's the library of, of Celsus. Now, Ephesus is important because just up the road from this is the Byzantium of St. John. It's called Byzantium because he was a saint and therefore it gets called that. Um, But it's reputed that he finished his life there. He, And the persecution that was happening in Jerusalem, he um, retreated to Ephesus because Ephesus was the big Christian center. Um, Now, also, if John went there, who else was John meant to look after? Do you remember the Gospels? Remember Jesus said, John, would you look after my mother? And it's fascinating because I hadn't thought anything of this, but we, on our tour, we went up the hill out of Ephesus to Mary's house. Now I do this because this is tradition and who knows exactly if it was there or if it was her house. And there's lots of skepticism expressed by the New Zealand um, Westerners we were with, you know, what's we doing this for? You know, Ephesus, why are we bothering with this silly little shrine? You know, it's nonsense. 
The Muslim tour guide was deeply respectful, for this was the house and the place, could have been the place where Jesus' mother, Jesus the great prophet's mother, lived. So Ephesus was hugely significant in Christian history and in Christian mission. This was a, yeah, a lovely baptistry. Maybe we should get one like that when we finally get our baptistry put in, in the shape of a cross. Um, I, I mean, practically, people go for tanks these days, but I just really liked that. Um, if that's the way it was, was originally, or someone just nicked half of it, I don't know. Here's the Colosseum. Here's 40,000 people shouting, Great is Artemis! of the Ephesians. Look in your passage, look in your chapter, because that's the next bit that we haven't read on to. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We are Ephesians. How dare Paul and this new Christian sect, these groups, come in and threaten to change things. Demetrius, who was a silversmith, was upset, so upset with what was happening in Ephesus at the time through the work of Paul and others, that he rushed into this place and shouted that. And there's a huge riot and disturbance that went on for a long time that you read of in that chapter. And here it was, that's where it took place. And I pretended at one point to go in the middle and shout as if I was an Ephesian. There's the place, 40,000 people gathered. I come on to this quote because Demetrius felt threatened because... A Christian movement was taking shape. They weren't using the word church, but a movement. And it's interesting how you define a movement. A movement of people, empowering people, giving people new identity, new hope. Healing was happening. Wholeness was being found. People were being set free in Ephesus. If you look at the encounters in the New Testament, it's been suggested that a movement is a group of people organized for ideologically motivated by and committed to a purpose which implants some form of personal or social change, who are actively engaged in the recruitment of others, and whose influence is spreading in opposition to the established order within which it originated. I would like us to recognize that we are part of the international Christian movement. And that as a movement, God will do things in our midst that will be messy, but there will be change and transformation. God invites us to work with what God's doing and be part of this international liberation movement. There's so much more I could say about Ephesus, obviously. You've seen enough snaps of mine or whatever. It's okay. There's no more embarrassing snaps. Or I wish, I'm sure you wish there were. But um, I want to finish with this symbol this was an early Christian symbol that was found outside a shop on the, on the high street, on the main street in Ephesus. We were told by a tour guide, you can play a game with it. You can sort of throw some dice and if they land in different quadrants, it means different things. At the same time, it was a Christian symbol that you could spell out the word ichthys from. And we had this debate as to whether this was before Constantine or after, whether this was a sign of, yes, I'm a Christian and, you know, bless me because I'm a Christian, because I'm part of the Roman Empire, or if it was a more of a subversive sign saying, I'm a Christian here. And people would look at that and not see how to spell out the ichthys. <coughs> I want to finish by suggesting that the Christians in Ephesus made their mark, not just 
within their own groupings, but on the whole of Ephesus, and they touched it spiritually. They touched it spiritually. As Christians here in our place at this time, we want to be committed to Jesus Christ, whatever that means, and people will react differently to us. A whole riot grew up because of what Paul said, and his his followers managed, as you'll see, to persuade him not to go out in the midst of it, because Paul's such a such a blether, and he probably couldn't stop himself but saying something. But all this arose because of just this spread of, of Christianity. There will be times where we as Christians rub up the wrong way with other people. We should not be surprised at that. But let me tell you, the temple of Artemis, nothing is left of it in Ephesus. Sadly, it was one of the wonders of the world, there's not a stone left of it. Or if there's a stone, it's probably in the British Museum. In Ephesus, sadly, it's not there. But it became a significant mission pad, launching pad, for Christians, for, for followers of Jesus, to build a new world, to show a new way of being together. That's not simply about civility and living well with one another, but it's about transforming the world in the name of love for God. That's the movement that we too are called to be part of. Amen.